My name is Gabriel. In what you would call the winter, early in 6 BC, I was on a mission to find the mother of our Lord. It was a crisp, clear winter day when I found the Jewish teenager named Miriam. Christians would later call her Mary. She was going about her normal household chores in a small stone house of Nazareth. She still lived with her parents, although she was betrothed to Yosef, a local carpenter. As was the custom, this was an arranged marriage. The financial details worked out between her parents and her husband-to-be. Nazareth was a small backwater town with a population of less than 2,000. Its inhabitants were mainly farmers and day laborers. They were peasants and at the bottom of the socioeconomic scale. So so-called carpenters did general construction work, including building walls, but they were also craftsmen making and repairing harnesses for animals and other things used by more wealthy people. A hard worker could get by earning about a denarius a day. He was lucky if he could afford the dowry necessary to marry a girl from a nice home. Yosef was a good man. Miriam's parents liked him for his character more than anything, certainly more than his position in life. Although he was twice Miriam's age, such arrangements were common. A girl went from being the property of her father to the property of her husband. So it was good to find a husband who was mature. And it's not like they had many options to choose from. As it turned out, Yosef would be a good husband. He would work hard, help raise their children to adulthood, and then he would die before their firstborn reached 30 years of age. One month earlier, I appeared to Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. As the old man carried out his assigned duties in the temple, I suddenly appeared right in front of him. Since he was a priest, I thought I should make an impressive entrance. So when he turned around, there I was standing between the golden lampstand and the altar of incense. And of course, I about scared him to death. I told him not to be afraid because his parents had been answered. His wife, Elisheva, Elizabeth, would have a child, and they would name him Yohanan, meaning Yahweh is gracious. He would go out in the spirit of Elijah and turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children and prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. After talking to him, until I knew he understood, he just looked at me and said, so how do I know this will really happen? After all, my wife and I are not kids anymore. Because I'm Gabriel, I said. I stand in the presence of the Lord. But I could tell he was worried about looking like an old fool when he had to face his friends and relatives. So I said, here's your sign. 
you will not be able to talk until your son is born. That not only convinced him, it meant he didn't have to be embarrassed trying to explain my appearance or his wife's geriatric pregnancy. Now, as I came to Nazareth, I figured I'd better talk to this young girl a little differently than I did to Zacharias. So I called her from outside the house like any normal human being would. As Miriam bent over a blackened fire pit used for cooking, she caught a glimpse of me standing outside the doorway. Thinking it was Yosef, she wiped her hands, brushed long strands of hair from her face, and stood. But it was me, not Yosef. So she quickly pulled a veil over her face and backed away, not just out of fear, but out of propriety. Shalom, favored lady, Adonai is with you, I said, bending my neck so as not to hit my head on the door as I stepped into the room. I used the word Adonai, meaning Lord, which technically could mean any number of officials, landowners, or even politicians. But I could tell Miriam knew I was no ordinary messenger from some half-witted politician. She knew I used the term in the way the Hebrews used it when they avoided pronouncing the holy name, Yahweh. But she looked troubled. So I said those words that all angels have to say when on those rare occasions they appear to humans. I said, don't be afraid, Miriam, for you have found favor with God. And then I said something that I have never said before and will never say again. I said, look, you will become pregnant. You will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Yeshua. Yeshua. The same name as the Hebrew leader who marched around Jericho. The name means Yahweh saves. In, in Greek, he would be Jesus. In Spanish, Jesus. And in English, his name would be Jesus. He will be great, I said. He will be called son of Ha-Elyon, Adonai. God will give him the throne of his father, David. How do you tell a young girl that the birth of her child will be the greatest miracle ever known in the universe? Now, every mother thinks that of their children, I suppose, but at that moment, I saw thousands of years of human history written on Miriam's face. She looked at me with worried eyes and with a calloused hand tried to wipe a smudge of soot from her cheek. Her hands were trembling and in her face I saw the downward spiral of Adam's descendants, the painful results of greed and treachery over millenniums of time. I saw the centuries of scratching out an existence in the midst of warring tribes and imperial policies, and I saw a certain despair that God might not step in and stop the madness before it was too late. At that very moment, Herod the Great, he was 
not so great as he imagined, was killing off his relatives so he could stay in power. He had even killed his own wife and would soon kill his own son. And he would try to kill Miriam's son also because he was afraid of any possibility that he had a rival. He was evil, and he had a right to be afraid. Miriam did not deserve those fears. She and the human race she represented needed a miracle. But in the face of that teenage girl, I also saw the pitiful but beautiful strength that is the human spirit. I saw in her pure eyes one that had not learned hatred. In a world of monsters, she still had the innocence of a child and the beauty of one who had not learned to suspect betrayal. I had terrified her. Of that I was certain. But she was listening, wide-eyed, and ready to do whatever the Lord wanted her to do. She was also intelligent and wise beyond her years. She did not argue. She said simply, how can this be since I have never been with a man? I suddenly felt sorry for her. Her initiation into womanhood would be abrupt and painful. She would find out who her friends really were. Many would avoid her presence as if she had some contagious disease. Even Yosef, her betrothed, would think he had to do the right thing by putting her away quietly. But she hadn't asked about that. She simply asked, how can this be? So I told her, the Ruach HaKodesh, spirit of the Holy One, will come over you. The power of Ha Elyon, the Most High, will cover you. Therefore, the Holy Child born to you will be called the Son of God. I went on to tell her about Elisheva, her cousin, who was pregnant in her old age. For nothing is impossible with God, I said. I am the Lord's servant, she answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then I turned, walked out the door, and disappeared. Miriam went to stay with Elisheva. In order to get there, she found a group of people who were traveling to Jerusalem for the spring festivals and walked with them. Being Israelites from the province of Galilee, they would not take the most direct route, which was through Samaria. Instead, they took a road west around the border, then south past Samaria into Judea. Then they turned eastward toward Jerusalem. From Jerusalem, Miriam walked the last few miles south to a little town in the hills where her cousin lived. She had traveled about 90 miles from Nazareth. I knew Yosef was wrestling with his conscience. Miriam had been honest with him and told him the whole story of how I scared her and then told her about becoming pregnant by the Ruach HaKodesh. But he was a practical man, used to making daily decisions on the basis of plans and measurements, cause and effect. And Miriam's story just didn't make sense. He wanted to believe her, but the facts were not in her favor. It was not a question of love. It was a question of obedience to the law. Since they were betrothed, unfaithfulness on her part 
was considered adultery, but Yosef would have nothing to do with any public humiliation or judgment. He would obey the law, but as quietly as possible. Now, I had another mission. I couldn't blame Yosef for thinking what he did, and the law, at least the way some interpreted it, did put him in a difficult spot. So I knew I had to give him a message. The question was how to do it. Zechariah had been frightened at my appearance and then wouldn't believe anything I said without proof. Miriam was more receptive, even though she was scared, but I had a feeling Yosef would either run in terror or try to kick me off of his property. So I gave him a dream. <laughs> Dreams were important to Israelites. They believed that there were three things that were signs of God's favor, a good king, a fruitful year, and a good dream. So I gave him a good dream. Don't ask me how, an angel has to have a few secrets. But I appeared to him in the dream and told him that the child inside Miriam was of the Ruach HaKodesh. The dream must have worked because the next morning, Yosef made plans for their wedding. After three months, Miriam returned to Nazareth. Her homecoming was a little awkward. Joseph would marry her as soon as he could, but there was still awkward questions and not so subtle looks behind her back. Nevertheless, she busied herself with setting up a household. Yosef, though poor, was a resourceful craftsman. He brought in new stones and expanded the house in order to be ready for the baby. As summer turned to fall, the couple anticipated with great eagerness and not a little fear the blessed event that was about to occur. But then the Roman emperor, the man who considered himself a god, Caesar Augustus, turned their plans completely upside down. He decreed that all subjects of the empire must register for the census. Registration had two main purposes, taxation and the military draft. Since Israelites organized themselves according to tribes and geography, every man had to go to his ancestral home in order to register. Since he was of the lineage of David, Yosef had to go to Bethlehem. Miriam had already made the 90-mile trip once when she visited her cousin. Now, with her pregnancy in its final trimester and the house ready for the baby, she and Yosef had no desire to walk all the way to Bethlehem. A few wealthier people owned horses and donkeys, but the main mode of transportation in those days was walking. People typically made the trip in three days. Fortunately, Miriam was young and strong. Although she might need an extra day or two, there was no question that she could make the trip. The question was, how long would they have to stay? Hopefully, they could find some of Yosef's relatives and stay with them for a few days, so they packed a few things and started out. After a few days of walking and sleeping in whatever caravan stop or camping spot they could find, the couple came within sight of Jerusalem. This was the center of everything as far as the Jews were concerned. The Romans hated this part of the empire. The terrain was dusty and the people were stubborn. 
the terrain, uh, the, the holy city to the Jews was the seat of David's kingdom and the place of Mount Zion where God promised to save his people. Herod the Great had done one good thing for the Jews. He had rebuilt the temple in a way that rivaled the splendor of Solomon's temple. He had extended the temple mount so that it was now a large flat platform with a colonnade around its perimeter. A roof covered the rows of columns creating what was called the temple courts. But Miriam and Joseph did not stop in Jerusalem. They kept going another five miles south until they came to Bethlehem. It was late in the day when they arrived, tired, hungry, and Miriam rather uncomfortable. Yosef asked around until he was finally directed to a house on the edge of town. They were distant relatives of his, not close, but still family. Even if they had not been family, the customs of Eastern hospitality determined that no one would be turned away. The problem was many descendants of David had descended on Bethlehem in order to obey the emperor. The place was crowded. Homes in those days often had two stories. The family used the upper story, which was really the main floor of the house, for its living quarters and to house guests. So the upper story was often referred to as an inn or guest room. During the last week before he died, Yeshua would direct his disciples to find the same sort of guest room or inn, the upper room in which they would celebrate the Passover and the Lord's Supper. The family used the ground level room in this type of house as a stable. This is where they had kept their animals. Typically, a large limestone block used, uh, stood off to one side in the large open room. The stone block was about three feet long and a foot and a half wide and high. It had been hollowed out from the top, forming a stone feeding trough or manger. When Miriam and Yosef arrived at the house, they found the inn or guest room already overflowing with other families. But not wanting to be inhospitable, the owner, a distant relative, offered to let them stay in the room under the house in the stable. This was not unheard of. When poor people traveled from place to place, they often stayed in caravan stops. These were large, two-story buildings built around a central courtyard. And just like a family dwelling, the lower story stabled the horses and camels. The upper story housed the travelers that could afford it. Poor people commonly stayed in the stable area along with the animals. So the couple set up house in the stable under the guest room. It might not have been as nice as the upper room, but at least it was relatively warm with enough space to create a sleeping area and get some much-needed rest. The next day, Yosef went looking for the census registration office. He found it and entered his name along with that of his wife and a description of the property he owned. Then, since he knew Miriam's time was near, he went looking for a midwife. They had hoped to make the return trip to Nazareth as soon as possible, but they realized now that they needed to stay in one place until the baby was born. 
After asking around, he found a woman who agreed on a price he could pay. Then she followed him back to the stable. Mary was becoming more uncomfortable by the minute. The midwife said she would probably deliver sometime in the next few days. She gave Yosef a list of things he needed. First were swaddling clothes, long strips of bandage-like cloths used to tightly wrap the baby to keep him immobile for the first seven days of his life. Then salt, oil, and water. After the birth, the midwife would wash the baby with salt water, then rub him down with oil and wrap him in swaddling clothes. The conditions were far from sanitary. And although the midwife would use the best methods known, everyone knew that most babies died shortly after they were born. In some places, in fact, infant mortality ran as high as 90%. So Yosef found the items the midwife asked for, cleaned out the stone feeding trough, and tried to make Miriam as comfortable as possible. I was ready for another mission. I had been waiting for this one all my life. The heavenly chorus was ready also. I had to give them special instructions not to burst into song too early. They needed to wait until I had appeared to the shepherds quietly and made them understand who the baby was and, and, and give them the directions on how to find him. Otherwise, they would just scare the poor fellows to death and the whole mission would be a bust. I also had to explain why we were making the greatest announcement in the universe to shepherds. There were a lot of people who needed to know about this, and in time they would. But the first ones to hear the best news in the universe would be the poorest, dirtiest, most undeserving class of people in the whole area. Shepherds were a notch lower on the social scale than carpenters. Because of their work, they were not very religious. They were always touching dirty animals, including dead ones, so they remained ceremonially unclean and were not allowed anywhere near the temple. Unless, of course, they were bringing in a new shipment of animals to be sold for sacrifices. But even then, they never ventured into the temple courts. They were crude, rude, backcountry hicks. They sat around their fires in the evening drinking their cheap wine and telling bad jokes, and they often flirted inappropriately with the girls during the town festivals. But they certainly worked hard and braved the elements of nature in order to do their job. So, these were the ones who would, hear the, would, would first hear the good news of Yeshua's birth. I tried to tell the other angels how fitting this was, that the most undeserving class of people in Palestine would first hear the gospel. The kingdom of Yeshua would be a kingdom completely upside down from earthly kingdoms. He would bless the poor, those mourning loss, and those who suffered from being on the wrong side of the law. And he would curse the upper-class religious leaders for their hypocrisy, for cleaning the outside of the cup and claiming a right to salvation while they harbored their hatred and prejudice against the other classes. That night, we kept watch over the house and stable where Miriam and Yosef stayed. We saw the midwife arrive. 
She belonged to a special group of women who acted as obstetrician, psychologist, and pediatrician. She also became, at least temporarily, part of the family. This was Miriam's first child, so labor was long and difficult. Oh, how we wept as we saw her struggle and suffer to bring the Savior into the world, but the Ruach HaKodesh was there to sustain her in her time of greatest triumph, and the pain would be nothing like the pain she would feel when evil men would condemn him to death on a Roman cross. Her birth pangs represent the pains of the entire world as it moves toward its appointment with the risen Yeshua at his second coming. But now her time had come. His time had come. And our time to make the greatest announcement in the universe had come. The moment we saw the midwife cradling the baby in her arms and cutting the umbilical cord, we instantly appeared in the hills of Bethlehem before a group of dazed shepherds. I appeared first, as quietly as I could, and I told them I was an angel of Adonai. And as I spoke, the Shekinah glory of God surrounded them, and not surprisingly, they were terrified. Don't be afraid, I said, because I'm not here to hurt you. I'm here to bring you the good news that will bring great joy to you and all the people. Then I told them where to find the Messiah. They would find him wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a feeding trough. At that moment, the heavenly hallelujah chorus could not hold back one more millisecond. So I gave them a downbeat and suddenly the dark skies above Bethlehem were filled with celestial beings. It was an army of angels with a chorus in the front singing praises to their Savior. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. Oh, we were awesome, if I don't say so myself. Not that we thought of ourselves for even one moment. We were caught up in such rapture and jubilation that we made the rocks and hills around Bethlehem cry out as they echoed our symphony of praise. Three angels, like jets on afterburners, buzzed the treetops, swooping low over the shepherds and heading off in the direction of the stable. Angelic fireworks lit the sky, and the sound was at the same time so deafening and glorious that those who heard it could hardly bear it and yet never wanted it to stop. We sang till I thought our lungs and our hearts would burst. We sang as we followed the shepherds to the stable. We sang as they knelt and worshiped the newborn king, and we sang all the way back to heaven. We sang not because there was now peace on earth. That was certainly not true. We sang not because human beings deserved to have the king in their midst. They didn't. We sang because the king of the universe had just declared peace with earth. In spite of the treachery, the greed, the cruelty, and the desperate existence of its inhabitants, God declared that he was at peace with earth. He did not come to destroy. He came to save. And he will save his people from their sins, for he is Emmanuel, God with us.